Hi there, and welcome to the Ask Mr. DNS podcast. This is episode 17, and I am your co-host, Matt Larson, along with, as always, Cricket Lou. So here we are, 17 episodes. 17, old enough to, uh, to see a rated R movie, I guess, or NC-17, as it's called now. Well, there's still rated R. There's still, there still is uh, rated R. I think there's a distinction between the two, right? I think NC-17 is you absolutely cannot see it if you're right. younger than 17, whereas R, whereas R... you can go with your parent, right? Right. Yes, I remember... It may not have been my first R-rated movie, but I remember the one that made an impact on me. It was... Uh, I was I was definitely younger than 17, and I went with my dad to see Money Python's Meaning of Life. <laughs> yeah, I remember and I don't know if well. you recall, but there's a... There's the sex ed scene in there with John Cleese. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And right. his wife. Mounts and... his good lady wife. Yes, I remember. Oh, good heavens. I wanted to just... <laughs> Curl up and die. <laughs> yes. Very awkward. Well, that's one reaction to have to it. I, I suppose it's probably the close to... Well, I, I, of course, you're younger than I am by several years, so I think the first rated R movie I ever saw was uh, Animal House. And I was... I had the good fortune to have a friend, uh, Nick Matarangas, and Nick's mom was, um, as I recall, she drove us to the theater, probably in there. They had a dune buggy, believe it or not, that she drove around. You and your your California upbringing. Yeah, yeah. She drove us to the theater. (laughs) There there were no dune buggies in northern Illinois, I'll have you know. (laughs) No, I I would have been surprised, unless there was some, you know, some bunch of sand dunes in northern Illinois that I just don't know about. But she she took us to the movie theater, um, bought us tickets, and then drove away. (laughs) You know, basically, here here are your tickets, boys, have fun. It was the best of all possible worlds. Yeah, and Animal House, what a classic. Yeah, really. Really, so thank you, Mrs. Matarangas. <laughs> That's one of those movies you should just see every few years on general principles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a great movie. Really fun. Well, I think we've degenerated in our seventeenth episode. We're now not even waiting till after the topical material to dive into the you know movies and other ephemera. Yeah, it didn't take long. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. Do you? Do you have a question in the old mailbag? I do. Let me reach into the the mailbag here, and I have a uh, a question that came in from uh, Rob Zarka. I, I think it's Zarka, S Z A R K A. And Rob says, "Hi guys, as a longtime fan of the parentheses infamous cricket book, why would the cricket book be infamous? It hasn't achieved infamy, as far as I know. Well, anyway." So we'll just say the famous cricket book. I'm surprised it took me this long to find your podcast, but I'm halfway through catching up. I hope the lack of recent updates just means you've been very, very busy. Well, he's he's generous there. I think it means we've, <laughs> we've been <laughs> occupied with other things, family, sleep, stuff like that. Uh, anyway, I would love to see you address a very basic question. How many authoritative DNS servers is too many for a zone? And how important is the length of the fully qualified domain name of each? For example, I have a vague idea that serving foo.com from many servers with long names might result in longer responses uh, and more packets, thus degrading performance. Keep up the good work. Well, that's a good question. It is a good question. Yeah, I'm always impressed with uh, the questions that our our listeners send in. Well, so this lets us talk about a couple of, uh, I think, important and interesting fundamental DNS topics. And the two that come immediately to mind are... uh, 
the historical limit of 512 bytes for DNS messages sent over UDP. Right, right. And then we can talk about uh, domain name compression. Yep, and and how that works and how uh, the sort of similarity of the domain names in a DNS message uh, has an impact on on the effectiveness of compression, right? So the 512-byte limit, I mean, I, it should be historical at this point, right? Basically, should be. Basically, uh, now that now that every modern name server supports eDNS zero, we can use DNS messages that are much much larger than 512 bytes, and it's only very old name servers that uh, that uh, play, impose that restriction. Except <laughs> there are those um, those those intermediate devices, right? Those pesky middle boxes. Yeah, the middle boxes. That's that's sort of a new term, isn't it? I guess new within what the past. I don't know, five, six, ten years. Yeah, depends yeah. on your definition of new, I guess. Yeah, and so I guess there there are some devices that are particularly problematic. Um, things that sort of attempt to function like firewalls, I think, are are the the chief culprits here, right? Yeah, I, I would say any sort of device that wants to add value by looking at uh, DNS packets and trying to understand them and take action based on their contents. Right. Right. I remember um, early on in the in the history of eDNS zero, um, which was the extension that allowed these longer UDP-based DNS messages. I remember that uh, Checkpoint had some facility called Smart Defense, and Smart Defense was not too smart in that it believed that DNS messages couldn't be lo longer than 512 bytes and wouldn't allow them through. So I believe you even had to had to either turn off Smart Defense or you had to disable. Um, disable eDNS zero in order to work through a checkpoint firewall for a while. Well, the other one that was notorious uh, that I've heard mentioned uh, more recently is uh, the Cisco PIX firewall. Can you even buy a Cisco PIX firewall anymore? I, I think that, that PIX has been superseded. You know, it's a whole product line now, but uh, I, I, forget, I forget exactly um, which one. Maybe ACE, like Application Control Engine or something like that. Uh, well, you're more up on that than I, but I definitely know that there are versions of Cisco PIX that uh, I believe out of the box come with, well, definitely out of the box assume that DNS messages are 512 bytes or less, and you can override the default config. I believe that's the, the situation. Right, right. So, I, I, and there's also, I, I think that that uh, in this day and age, um, eDNS zero has been around long enough so that probably most people have have dealt with these problems with uh, with their firewalls. At least I would hope so. Well, that being said, to do a little foreshadowing to a topic we want to bring up later on in the uh, in the episode, namely uh, signing the root, that's one of the things we were quite worried about from a design standpoint. And when we're de deploying the sign root, is uh, you know, how many people will be unable potentially to receive the larger responses that you get with DNSSEC. Sure, sure. And now, despite all our research, we haven't gotten any indication that there is a substantial population of, of such clients that can't hear responses larger than 512. But we certainly went to an awful lot of trouble to roll out slowly to make sure that if there were such clients, we would find them and give them chance to, uh, you know, chance to complain. So all that being said, um, you know, theoretically, you could have a whole bunch of NS records if you wanted, and the 512-byte barrier is, you know, for all intents and purposes, a thing of the past. 
And in fact, I'm reminded of some you know really heinous examples I've seen in really large uh, uh, Microsoft Active Directory uh, installations where I think AD by default, when you add a new domain controller, it just slaps the NS record in the zone, right? Yeah, every every instance of a Microsoft DNS server that uh, you know it runs as as AD integrated for a particular zone will add an NS record in for itself. And then you can use the uh, DNS console MMC snap in to delete it, but then it'll add itself back in. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I believe that's true. But I have definitely seen truly huge NSRR sets for for zones that just have, I mean, dozens of NS records. Oh, yeah. I, it's, it's, it's terrible. I mean, in, in some cases, it's... it's you know, not dozens, it's, you know, well over a hundred in, in the cases of some of our customers. Oh, wow. That's crazy. So, you know, you, def- you definitely don't want that. I think uh, Rob's definitely, uh, he's got the right idea that at some point you reach uh, diminishing returns in that you have these large responses and they're really not doing you much good. Mm-hmm. That is kind of a lead in into this other topic that I mentioned that would be good to talk about, and that's domain name compression which is a, a rather clever little uh, hack that the DNS packet format, or strictly speaking, it's the DNS message format allows. And uh, what it allows is once uh, a, a domain name or a portion of a domain name appears anywhere in a message, if you're going to reference that same domain name again, you don't need to uh, copy it out again. It doesn't need to actually appear in the message. There's just a little two bytes, two bytes, right? Yeah, two bytes. There's a two-byte pointer that's basically the byte offset earlier in the message of where the domain name that you're interested in occurs. It's possible to name your name servers to take advantage of this. If you give them all a common domain name, then that common domain name only needs to appear once. And uh, sort of the canonical example of this is the root servers. The root servers uh, used to be named uh, sort of like every other name server, namely the organization that ran the root server that was the name of the of the server right there was like aos.brl.mil and P, there was a psi net name server all those ones right and yeah and a terp.umd.edu cuz the maryland's oh, right. uh, mascot is the the terrapin kind of an odd mascot but <laughs> yes i think they're the fighting terrapins even aren't they uh, now i'm going to have you know 50,000 university of maryland people upset at me for talking potentially disrespectfully of their mascot but anyway <laughs> we should be so lucky if they have that many <laughs> listeners <laughs> but anyway so that's that's how the root servers were named and this was back in the day before edns zero and uh the sort of decision was well we need more root servers but we were already at 512 they the the list of the 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 response for the um uh priming query which is you know when you send a root server a query for the NS records for the root itself, the priming query response was already nearing 512 with the, mm-hmm. the then current list of root servers. And um, somebody had the idea, I believe it was Bill Manning, the one of the operators of the B root, had the idea that, well, if we, if we renamed them all and gave them a common domain name, we could take advantage of compression. And so that's why mm-hmm. they're named a.root-service.net through m.root-service.net because that, you know, the first domain name you get a.root-service.net, that appears in the message. And then when it comes time to reference B, you only have B, and then a backward pointer to wherever rootservers.net appeared the first time in the message and so on. Right, right. B dot what he said. Exactly. And so he could he could take advantage of this. Rob could take advantage of this and, and you know, have 
uh, if he wanted to have that many uh, that many name servers, he could he could have the name servers have uh, domain names that ended in the same suffix, effectively. Yeah, I, I think it's the rare zone though where you actually need multiple name servers for the performance that they afford. I mean, I I guess if you ask, well, why do you need multiple name servers in the first place? I, I would argue there are two reasons. I mean, one is for redundancy, so you don't have a single yeah. point of failure. And, yeah. and the other would be capacity to spread the load around. There's also, I think, geographical distribution. Oh, okay. I'll buy that. Yep. Um, you know, some some organizations that have a global presence want to have, you know, big name servers close to, uh, you know, where they have concentrations of customers. And, you know, that, that, that can argue for having a large number. All right. Yep. I, I agree with that. So uh, the point I was uh, working toward was that for most zones, though, the uh, the capacity is really not an issue because you're just not going to get enough queries that you'd stress, you know, even even two name servers probably. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. when, when you talk about the root or uh, .com and .net, you know, we, we get enough queries for .com and .net that, you know, we need every one of the 13 uh, authoritative servers and even more with any cast. Uh, you know, we really have enough load that we like to spread it around like that. But, you know, that's the that's the outlier in terms of capacity. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Th- there is one note that we might want to bring up, though, which uh, is something that I have to say that I probably wasn't aware of until relatively recently and um, and actually uh, probably didn't cover in DNS and Bind at all, which is, you know, you, you probably don't want uh, resolving the names of your name servers to uh, require looking something up in, a, in another, in a completely different domain name. Do you follow me? Yes, absolutely. So are, are you saying that if, uh, you know, the foo.com zone sh- should probably name its name servers in foo.com? Exactly. So that's the other, uh, sort of the, the, the other reason I think that uh, you might want to have a lot of, you know, all of your name servers actually um, end in the same suffix is because you want, uh, you want the, the resolution to an IP address to happen without having to, to, to go re- resolve something else, right? Because you, if you have, for example, uh, a name server for foo.com that's ns1.bar.com, then um, some poor recursor out there has to go chase that down and, and go look up the NS records for com and bar.com and, and so on, just in, in order to resolve that to an IP address. Yes. I, the, the term that I've seen for this that uh, I think the credit for it goes to uh, Dr. Dan Bernstein, uh, University of Illinois, Chicago, uh, wrote TinyDNS and uh, DNS Cache. He calls that in Ballywick. Yeah, in Bailiwick, yep. yeah. Yeah, the name of the server is uh, the, the name of the domain. And I yep. I resisted using that term, but I think it's... I know. <laughs> but I think it's uh, it's probably too late. It's it's become a term of art, I think. Yes, the horse has left the barn. It has. Well, speaking of horses, I think we've beaten that horse till it's dead. We've flogged it. Okay, good. All right, well, I, I had... Uh, uh, Another question that actually came came to me verbally by a, a coworker, and uh, the question sort of boils down to uh, why are there NS records in the child zone? So, for example, we have the foo.com zone. You know, there are foo.com NS records that delegate foo.com in the .com zone. And that's mm-hmm. how everybody finds the foo.com zone. But then there's another copy of the foo.com records NS records in the foo.com zone itself. And uh, the question is essentially, well, you know, what what are those doing there? I mean, are they, are they really doing any good? And, mm-hmm. and then the more pointed question is, 
what if you took them out? Would things still work? So I thought right. that was kind of interesting. Well, I have to I have to take you to task because I know how exacting you are, and I know especially how exacting your wife is. And you said it came to you verbally. Well, of course it came to you verbally. He didn't he didn't act out the question, right? I guess not. Yes, it came to you orally, right? Oh, I see what you mean. Yes, okay. I know that Sonia would have would have taken me to task had I said that, or at least an eyebrow would have raised. <laughs> I think. Yes, you're absolutely right. Thank you. Um, no, but it's a good question. It is. And, and it's one I think that I, I can even recall early on in, in learning about DNS, wondering what those NS records were doing in the zone itself. And we've, I've come to call those uh, intra-zone NS records, although I don't, I don't necessarily know that that's, that's the correct term. It's just the one that I use. Do you, do you know? Is there, a, is there a better term for it? Not that I know of. I've used that term myself. That probably dates back to our Acme Bite & Wire training material. Probably in does, fact, I yeah. think it does. I can see the slide in my mind's eye. <laughs> yeah. So, so, um, so, what do those what do those uh, NS records do? I guess what one thing that that we should talk about just briefly is is credibility, right? And the, the idea that um, you know when you're resolving www.foo.com, initially you're going to get a set of NS records from the com name servers, and then you'll query one of the uh, foo.com name servers that you're referred to. And probably when you get a response from that foo.com name server, you'll also get a set of NS records in the authority section of the message that comes back. Um, and, and those, because they come from an authoritative name server for foo.com, that set of NS records for foo.com is, is, is considered to have higher credibility and consequently overwrites the set of NS records that you got from the com name server. Right, and there's this whole hierarchy. It's defined in RFC 2181, which is the uh, clarifications to the DNS specification. It's sort of all the things that everybody realized a few years later got left out of 1034, 1035, the core spec, or were simply best practices that had been learned along the way, and people thought, we got to write these down, Yeah, and, and that's yeah. one of them. I don't know that it's actually called credibility in there. Maybe it is. Yeah, a bind calls it credibility, and it used to be that in a cache, uh, when you dump cache, you could even see credibility. You'd see a little comment, um, you know, that would say, like, CR equals or something. Yeah, I remember that. I think it was CR. So that's one. Yeah. And then there's also uh, dynamic update and notify. Uh, you yep. know, those protocols, in order to find, they need to find authoritative servers for the zone itself, and, you know, the authoritative servers are listed in the zone's NS records. So if you can't, query the zone itself for NS records, uh, those protocols wouldn't work terribly well. Right, right. So the primary name server, and in fact, the secondary name servers for a zone will look up the NS records for the zone, or actually will use the NS records for the zone to determine where to send notify messages. Right. But I think if we if we think about that second part of the question that I asked, you know, could, could, could you make it work? I mean, so we were talking before we started recording, bind won't even load a zone without NS records. It's got to have at least one or it'll complain and uh, not start. That's right. A minimal zone has one SOA record and one NS record. But let's say that you hack together a, a name server in you know Perl using a, a NetDNS or, or something like that, and you had a zone, served up a zone that did not have NS records in it. Uh, would it work? You know, would, would other uh, resolvers on the internet be able to look up stuff in your zone? And, and I think the answer is yes. And, and you could send back, let me think, could you send back all different types of responses, like a negative response, um, for example? 
Well, that only needs an SOA. It only needs an SOA for the, for the negative caching TTL. So I guess you really could, couldn't you? Right, because this is analogous to the minimal answers uh, feature that we've talked about in a recent episode, I remember, in, in Bind. Minimal responses. Yeah. Did I? What did I say? Minimal answers. Yeah. Yeah. Min- minimal responses. Just in case someone's going to look for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Minimal responses just says basically send the bare minimum, which means don't fill out the authority section and when you don't have to. And one of the cases where you don't have to is to just put in the set of NS records when you're sending an authoritative response. Right. And you'd have to kind of work around it, um, you know, if, if you still wanted to use Notify. For, and of course, you, you don't have to use Notify. You could go back to the bad old days of um, set secondary name servers polling their master servers. But if you wanted to use Notify, you just have to have a list of IP addresses to send Notify messages to or, or, or do without. See, I guess I think of those as the good old days. <laughs> it was when also DNS simple then. was 300 pages long, yeah. All right. Well, that question, such as it was, I think we've also uh, exhausted. Yep, I think so. Well, so we wanted to wind up the episode talking about, uh, as, as we seem to in, uh, in every episode, DNSSEC inevitably comes up. But this is going to be a pretty big week uh, upcoming for, for DNSSEC. And, and now the question is, can we get the podcast edited and out before uh, the events we're about to talk about? Ooh, yeah, that's that's going to be a challenge. Is it whose turn is it? I don't know. We'll have to flip a coin and argue afterward. <laughs> All right. But anyway, this uh, this week, hopefully, uh, hopefully happening after the release of this podcast, uh, Thursday, July fifteenth, is the day that the uh, root gets signed for real. Mm-hmm. As listeners of this podcast, our Legion listeners know, uh, the root has been signed for some time but has been uh, published to an increasing number of the root servers uh, in a uh, deliberately unresolvable fashion. We've, mm-hmm. we've called it the DERS, the, the deliberately unvalidatable root zone. So the key material has been, uh, has been occluded. But now on, uh, on July 15th, uh, we're actually going to stop doing that. We're going to sort of stop breaking the zone, and uh, the root zone will be revealed, and people will actually be able to use it. And and where where will we go to get a copy of uh, the public key? That is an excellent question, and I do not know all the details because uh, the the key signing key, the roots key signing key that you'll use as a trust anchor, uh, is going to be published by ICANN. That's one of their responsibilities in the process, right. and I'm I'm sure that it will feature prominently on their uh, web page. But uh, mm-hmm. beyond that, I don't exactly know all of their all of their plans for how they're going to uh, how they're going to make that available. But speaking of the of the roots uh, key signing key, uh, I was actually involved in the uh, the ceremony that created it, and it was uh, it was really cool. And I wanted to talk talk about it just a little bit. Sure, it was a, a small moment of history that I was kind of excited to be a part of. So, the um, obviously the roots key signing key. Uh, for the root zone is is really really important because it's going to be configured in millions of places. Mm-hmm. Sure. And so it's really important that that key uh, not be compromised because if it did, there'd be a real fire drill while everybody changed that key out. So it's it's very important that uh, that the key be kept safe, and it's also important that people uh, have confidence in the key and think that it was. Uh, created in a transparent manner and, and is used according to procedures. And so it's, uh, it's ICANN's responsibility as part of their IANA functions contract 
that they administer to uh, manage that key. And so they have two different facilities that they've, they've set up. They're called key ceremony rooms. Uh, one is in uh, Culpeper, Virginia, and the, the locations aren't, aren't secret. Uh, and the other one is uh, somewhere near, near L.A., well, I mean, I think it's in L.A. I haven't seen the uh, the West Coast facility, but the the very first ceremony was uh, in June in the Culpeper facility. And Culpeper is conveniently outside a uh, nuclear blast radius of uh, Washington, D.C. <laughs> OK, that's actually why it's that's why there's this huge data center in uh, in Culpeper. And uh, so I, I can has this facility and uh, it, it basically consists of uh, multiple nested tiers of security. And the primary purpose of this facility is to house the equipment that uh, has the, the key signing key in it. This is equipment called a, uh, an HSM, a hardware uh, security module. Mm-hmm. And that's a, uh, you can consider it a sort of a black box that, that has a private key in it. You, can, you generate the key on the box and you can't get the key out of the box to look at it. You can you can get it out of the box as an encrypted blob that you can then move to another box for redundant purposes, but you can't ever see the key. When it when it moves, it's this opaque blob that you can't can't see. And you send data into the, the box to be signed and out comes the signed data. And in fact, the kinds of HSMs that we're using for the root are the, uh, the absolute most stringently certified ones that actually are sensitive to tampering literally if you if, if the thing thinks you're trying to get inside it it just zeros out the key material and turns itself into a brick so mm-hmm. you have to be careful you can't even drop them because it's not so much that you you'd break the uh you'd break it but that it that it uh it would self-destruct yeah it would yeah. self-destruct yeah. exactly so there was a uh, there was a ceremony in june where uh a bunch of us got together and uh that that key was created and there are uh, people called uh, trusted community representatives. ICANN is involving people in the community uh, to have a role in using the key to increase the transparency and to in- increase the participation. And so there are seven people whose job is to hold a portion of um, the key. Well, it gets, gets, gets a little complicated here. So the key needs to be backed up because what happened? What would happen if you lost both the... Uh, Culpeper facility and the LA facility, you know, then nobody would have a copy of the uh, of the key signing key. So what the HSMs can do is uh, they can they can export an encrypted copy of the key for backup purposes, and mm-hmm. then they can take the decryption key for that that encrypted blob and they can split it among multiple parties. So the the number that we've chosen is seven. So so seven. Seven people hold a share. They're called recovery key shareholders. They hold a share of the key that decrypts the key signing key. Mm-hmm. And five out of the seven of those people would have to come back together uh, with their with their their smart card with their portion of the key to uh, to reconstitute the decryption key for the key signing key. So those people got enrolled and and they left with their their smart card. And then there are another another seven people called uh, crypto officers, and they'll have an ongoing responsibility. Uh, three out of those seven crypto officers have to be present every time to use the key signing key. They have to uh, present their credentials to the HSM, and only when the HSM sees three out of seven does it say, okay, I'll now let the KSK be used. Hmm. So there were really quite a large number of people in there. Yeah, it sounds like it. 
Yeah, we had the seven uh, recovery key shareholders. We had the seven crypto officers, and everybody had to be there to go through the sort of enrollment process. Uh, and then you, you can't just get into this room. One person can't get into the room. It takes uh, it takes two people to get into the room itself, and then the safes that hold the uh, the HSMs and the other uh, material those are in yet another interior room, and uh, it takes. Well, I, I, I don't know all the security off the top of my head, but it like it, there are two safes and it takes a separate person to open each safe. So it you end up needing, I think you need three people just to get into the facility and then that can't even get you uh, into the safes. So it takes a bunch of people to do this to say nothing. And that's just I can't staff to say nothing of the actual uh, crypto officers themselves, the community representatives that are needed to actually use the key. I, I keep thinking of the beginning of Get Smart. <laughs> I suppose, yeah. No, I think of the uh, the beginning of War Games, which I saw just the other night on on cable. You know, where they got the two guys in the silo, and that's that's what this this cryptographic technique is called M of N, where you need uh, you know so many people. In this case, three of seven to use the key. Uh, it, it's like right. launching a nuclear missile. M of N. It's it's two of two. Both guys have right. to turn their key, or uh, missile doesn't launch. But uh, so what we did was we, uh, this was on June 15th, we, uh, we created the, the key, or rather we sat there and watched the HSM create the key. And then the, the whole purpose of that, of that key, well, one of the main things it does is, is it signs zone signing keys that uh, VeriSign generates that we use to sign the root zone on an ongoing basis. And what'll happen is once a quarter, uh, three out of the seven crypto officers at a minimum will, will come to one of these facilities along with all the ICANN uh, staff and they'll have one of these key ceremonies and they will sign what needs to be signed for the next quarter. Mm -hmm. And ICANN and VeriSign have developed this uh, uh, communication mechanism where VeriSign sends a request to ICANN, we're calling it a key signing request, which basically says, this is the stuff we need signed for the next quarter, you know, will you please sign it? And then uh, that that gets uh, that gets signed by the key signing key during one of these ceremonies, and it gets sent sent back to uh, Verisign as a signed key response. So there are these these two documents: the KSR goes to the ceremony, and the SKR comes out of the ceremony. But one of the uh, steps in the procedure is, you know, so ICANN gets the uh, the key signing request from Verisign, and they're about to use this very important key signing key to sign it. But how do they know that they have a legitimate key signing request? Right. And we decided to build into the procedure uh, something really quite manual, which is uh, literally somebody from ICANN picks up the phone during the ceremony and calls somebody from VeriSign. And ideally, these are two people who recognize each other's voices. And the VeriSign person reads the cryptographic hash of the key signing request to the, to the ICANN person. And the ICANN person compares it. This is the hash you know, the hash of the KSR that that they have that, well, indeed, the VeriSign sent to them, but uh, it's just making sure that the, the version of the KSR that they have is absolutely the, the correct one. Mm -hmm. But for the first key signing uh, ceremony, uh, rather than use the phone, we decided to have somebody there in person and I got to be the someone. So, All right. Yeah. So I was in, I was in the room and when the time came, I stood up and proved I was Matt Larson and that I worked for VeriSign. And then I very dramatically read off the, the cryptographic hash. Actually, it was the PGP word list of the hash. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. That's uh, fun. Yeah. And uh, and I turned around so that I wasn't looking at the monitor and everybody else in the room was staring at the monitor that was showing uh, the version of the uh, of the hash that, 
that ICANN had calculated over the KSR that we had submitted to them earlier. Fortunately, mm-hmm. they matched, and uh, the ceremony proceeded. Wow, it sounds like fun. It was, you know, it was, uh, it was cool. How how long was it, start to finish? It was seven hours. Okay, that doesn't sound like so much fun. <laughs> that part was not fun. Uh, fortunately, no. I only needed to be in there for the second half. There was only one break in in the middle, so it wow. is a real testament to the commitment uh, of these people that you had about thirty people in that room, uh, and, and there were no electronics allowed. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I would think. So there's nobody reading email. There's nobody looking at their iPhone. Everybody is staring ahead, uh, paying attention. You know, it was it was really very impressive in that regard. And 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 people were noticing things going, well, wait a minute. Are you sure, you know, should you do this? Or why are you doing that? And, uh, you know, it was uh, it, it was slick. But fortunately, I uh, I got to go in during only the second half. And uh, and, I, and I was glad. And, and even by the end of the second half, I was I was ready to get out of there, you know, one splatter is only so big to be quite candid. Yeah. <laughs> but the uh, so that so that that was the key ceremony in, in June. Uh, so that that was starting. Uh, the, I can't signed the uh, material for Q3. So starting on July 1st. Uh, so July, August, September, and tomorrow, as a matter of fact, is when I can is having a key ceremony in their LA facility, their West Coast facility. And that's when they, they've securely couriered the key material uh, to that facility. And tomorrow they'll initialize the HSMs in that facility. And as long as they'll have everybody there, they're going to sign the key material for Q4. And Dwayne Wessels, whom we've talked about on this podcast and who's actually appeared. And we've talked to. Talked to on this <laughs> yeah. podcast. Uh, Dwayne is actually going to be in LA and he will he will do the same role that I that I did. He will attest to the accuracy of the q4 ksr cool wow well, when you say secure courier it makes me think uh <laughs> that that naturally makes me think of like you know the the oceans 11 oceans 12 movies or something <laughs> yeah no they, that that's that's really important there's a there's a physical chain of custody uh mm-hmm. all the way well well from now on just those rooms i mean literally nothing happens in those ceremony rooms that is not logged and and videotaped and uh, you know, recorded every, every, everything. There's a there's a, a constant surveillance of those rooms again to increase uh, community trust in the security of the key, and that also mm-hmm. that that uh, that logging and that audit trail applies to the key material itself. So from the time that it left the Culpeper facility until it shows up in uh, L.A., you can be sure that ICANN staff, if asked, could could give you a, an accounting of exactly where the material's been and who's had it in their possession. Mm-hmm. Great. So I think that's more than enough about that. But it, it was cool. I guess I should say if, uh, well, we, we we won't. But by, by the time this this podcast appears, it'll be it'll be too late. But uh, they're actually uh, this ceremony is being streamed live over the internet, so you could actually watch. It won't be seven hours; it'll be less. But uh, you know, if you have nothing better to do, you could watch. All right. All right. Enough about key ceremonies. Well, shall I take us out? I think you should. All right. Well, as always, thank you very much for tuning in. It's uh, always a pleasure uh, receiving your, your questions. Uh, if you want to submit a question, please email it to MrDNS, that's M-R-D-N-S, at ask-mrdns.com, and we'll hope to hear from you. See you next time. Bye-bye.